You're listening to the Save the Marriage Podcast. Your marriage can be saved and strengthened if you have the right information. Join Dr. Lee Bauckham as he explores ways for you to improve your relationship and your life, starting right now. Last week, I took on a survival skill. <laughs> how do you survive a separation? You know, the, one of the reasons I talked about how do you survive a separation is because so many people are stuck in a separation that they didn't want. That they didn't really ask for it to happen. It's put upon them that a spouse has chosen to separate. And sometimes that leaves you feeling like you can't quite find your balance. And so last week, we talked a good bit about how you survive the separation which had some people remarking about other things they wanted to know how to survive. And so this week I wanted to talk about how to survive an affair. If you've been watching um, any media, you will know quickly that affairs uh, are kind of taken lightly these days, whether it's in movies or in music or on TV or in books that, you know, it's kind of the inevitable. My wife and I were watching a a new Netflix uh, show last night, and, and the backstory of it was of a man who had broken his family with an affair only to discover that he needed to return to his family. And and it just made me realize that there is this painful part of life that affairs do happen. No matter what we want to do, affairs do happen. Now, I will tell you that research on the percentage of affairs is um, not real easy to find. The reason is because not everybody will admit to an affair. Not only that, but There's some people who have multiple affairs. And not only that, but the exact definition of an affair is pretty difficult. So today I want to talk about affairs as they're identified, whether they're emotional affairs or physical affairs. And I will tell you right off that emotional affairs are pretty slippery to identify. Because while one spouse may say they cheated on me with an emotional affair, the other one says it's just a good friend. You know, we're, we're just sharing our life. We just, we connect, we click, you know, we like to talk about our jobs and our interests. And, and so a lot of times the emotional affairs are a little more uh, hard to pin down. They're a little more hard to identify than a physical affair because a physical affair is marked by physical contact, kissing, making out, having sex. Those are the pieces that are much more easy to delineate and say, well, that's obviously infidelity. But whatever happens If you see it as an affair, it is devastating to a relationship. That doesn't mean it ends the relationship, but it's devastating to two particular parts of a relationship. The two pieces are trust and self-esteem. Trust is your, your understanding, at least before the affair, that your spouse was doing what your spouse was saying your spouse was going to be doing. And so you could extend trust. And I think about that many times because... For myself, I spend a lot of time by myself. You know, I go running for a couple of hours sometimes, and I go paddling for a couple of hours sometimes by myself. But my wife's got to have some faith that I'm actually running and I'm actually paddling in order for that to work. And so there's a layer of trust that is just basically, can I trust the other person to be where they say they're going to be? But there's another level of trust. Can I trust my spouse to protect our relationship? Can I trust my spouse to protect the boundaries of our marriage, the promises that we made? And an affair lays open the fact that the trust is not there. The trust is, at least at that point, misplaced. But the other hurt 
The other place that's devastated is self-esteem because when somebody has an affair, it typically is hurtful to the person. I've heard so many people compare themselves to the other person and compare themselves, whether it's you know about appearance or um, activity level or weight or lots of other dynamics that just get into our head and hurt the self-esteem. So we start feeling bad about ourselves, that there must be something wrong if our spouse is cheating on us, rather than recognizing that that rarely has anything to do with that. But we'll get to that in just a little bit. Just recognize that the two pieces, the two primary primary pieces that are prominently devastated is the trust in the relationship and, and in some ways the self-esteem, the, the trust in yourself, the self-esteem that you carry with yourself. So now I want to take one moment to remind you that Many, many times, an affair is recoverable. Now, affairs are nothing new. Affairs didn't just start happening in recent years. Um, affairs have been going on probably for as long as there have been couples. And so just recognize that this has a long history. Uh, our, our religious books talk about how you treat an affair. And pretty much our religious traditions say that if somebody breaks the bounds and the bonds of a marriage, the person who was cheated on has the choice of leaving, has the choice of a kind of an out, automatic out. And so while that is ensconced in tradition, in religious tradition, I want to remind you that that's not necessarily the case, that it has to go that way. It gives you the option of that because the kind of the marriage contract has been broken. And when the contract is broken, according to tradition, you can walk away, and this is the part I would add, if you choose. Many affair relationships will end. Most will not make it very far at all. And many marriages that are ruptured, at least momentarily, by an affair can be recovered, can be healed, can find even sometimes a better place to be. Because sometimes the affair rips off the facade of the marriage that was there before. It helps people to understand that things weren't as good and weren't where they needed to be. And so suddenly you're at a point of truth. You're at a point of truth of deciding, do we move forward or do we call it quits? Can we find a real relationship? I don't know how many times... I've had somebody talking with me where they said, you know, everybody thought we had that relationship, the marriage that everybody wanted. And here I am now looking to realize that it wasn't the case at all. So just recognize that there are many times when a relationship can be recovered after an affair and made stronger than it was before the affair. So let's talk about some basics of what we're recovering from. I believe that there are several pieces to recover from. One is the grief. There's a grief of loss over the image of the relationship you thought you had. The grief over that perfect relationship you believed in. Now, a lot of times affairs happen, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in just a minute, but they happen in the midst of a pause in the relationship. And a lot of times people say, you know, I thought we had paused that. Maybe it was because of kids or work or some other activity that we'd hit pause. There is no such thing as a pause button marriage. And so a lot of times people thought they were on pause 
and thought their spouse was on board with that, only to discover that their spouse was looking elsewhere and moving in other relationships. And so there's a grief process either way, whether it's you thought things were okay or maybe you thought things weren't okay, but you didn't realize that there was somebody else now encroaching on the relationship. And there is a grief process to that. Sometimes people will contact me and they will have just discovered an affair and they say, I, can, I don't imagine I can ever feel different than this. But grief is like every time we have a grief, we go through the same process where immediately, you know, we kind of have this denial place. And then, then we might have a lot of anger and depression and we might be bargaining with the other person. And, and then we finally get to that stage of acceptance. You've probably heard those levels of grief, those stages of grief. And some people get stuck in one stage. But just for today, I want you to realize that the grief is a process that you have to walk through. There's no way around it. It can be painful and hurtful, but you got to go through the process. And so if you're listening to this and the affair has just come to the, to the kind of the, into the open, recognize that that is one layer of pain that will subside. It will begin to lessen it. You can begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And for people who have maybe wrestled for this for years, you might still find that there are remnants of that grief that come up and over lots of different events. You might have a kind of a reemergence of memories when something triggers it. You, you go to a place where you, you know they were or you see uh, something that reminds you of that or a car drives by that makes you think of something or lots of other little places that trigger us. I know lots of people who can't listen to certain songs or watch certain movies or read certain books because it brings it all rushing back. So that's the grief process. Another piece is that self-image. And, and part of what you've got to realize is that self-image piece, that this affair is not about you. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But you, you re- recognize that there is just a rupturing of the self-image that you carried with you. The person you were before you knew about this affair, now you're at a different place of understanding yourself differently. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Then I want to call kind of forward a distinction because a lot of people will say, you know, I just can't get these memories out of my head. And I just wanted to make a distinguishing remark that I heard uh, the other day in an interview about uh, the TV series on Vietnam that Ken Burns did. This veteran was saying, you know, finally he realized that there is a difference between reliving the trauma and just remembering it. Because in the moments after you find out, however you found out, maybe you saw them together or you found an email or you saw a text or some other way that's just right there and you you continue to relive that. One of my caution points that I make in my book, Recovering from the Affair, is that you don't want to keep asking all of the questions. The person who had the affair needs, if they want to recover the relationship, to be transparent and to answer questions. But the person who suffered the affair needs to be cautious to not be digging out all the information because then you have to live with those thoughts, with those memories, with those details. And sometimes that calls us, us to relive the trauma repeatedly. Normally, very early on in the process, you find that you're reliving it. It's like it takes over all of your senses. You hear, see, smell, everything is, is overtaken by that memory. But over time, you realize it's more like watching the video on a screen. It's, it's a little smaller, and, and you're just remembering the events. Sometimes the reliving comes upon you, and you can't do much to shake it. But over time, as it begins to lessen, then what you're trying to do is just not to remember it, not to give it too much energy. Because either way, reliving it or remembering it, 
You're talking about those thoughts and the thoughts that we give energy to and how we can pull that energy back if we choose to. So make sure that you understand that in the immediate aftermath, you're going to be reliving it a little bit. But over time, you shift to a place of remembering. And as you're remembering, it lessens and lessens over time. And that's when you know that you're, you're moving through the survival process of the affair. And then there is the redefining part. The redefining is uh, that the marriage is not what you thought it was. That doesn't mean that it's horrible. It just means that it wasn't what you had imagined it to be. And by the way, it doesn't mean it has to be that. It can be something much better. But it wasn't what you imagined it to be. Pretty consistently, people tell me that when they discover that their spouse has had an affair, that their immediate thing is to recognize that their relationship was not what they thought it was. It was not as joined and connected and committed as they thought. The second piece of redefining is that your spouse was not who you thought your spouse was. Suddenly, your spouse has clay feet. You know, a lot of people, we tend to idealize a spouse, and a lot of people come to realize that that idealization is just not true. It's not positive, possible. And so you begin to see this other person as something different. Usually, we go from overly idealized to overly criticized to overly critical and seeing them for even less of who they are. So first, we see them for more than who they are. And then oftentimes after an affair, we're seeing them for less than who they really are. There's usually some truth that's somewhere in the middle, that reality place. So at this point, I want to just step back and help you understand my concept of why an affair happens. There are two pieces, two primary pieces that drive affairs. And let me first say I need to bracket off one group of affairs. There are some people who talk about affairs and they have uh, different types of affairs. And as far as I can tell, that's a curiosity that doesn't do much to help you recover. It might be interesting to kind of look at and and diagnose, but in the end, rarely does it help through the process. With one exception, there are people who are addicted to, uh, to relationships or to sex. Oftentimes, it's a gender issue, that women tend to be more addicted to relationships and men tend to be more addicted to sex, but that's not necessarily set in stone. It can work both ways. And so there are the affairs that are more about addiction, wanting that charge of the new relationship or that charge of sex with another person. And and so a lot of times you see people who have a relation, extramarital relationship after extramarital relationship and, and affair after affair. At those points, I begin to think that we're really talking about an addictive process. So I want to bracket those out and instead talk about the vast majority of other uh, affairs. And those affairs are fueled by two things that happen simultaneously, unfortunately. The first is a lack of connection and the second is a lack of boundaries. If you've listened to me very long, you know that I believe that connection is the lifeblood of marriage, that what you're trying to get to is this place of being so connected that you understand you're a we. We are in this together. The problem is when you don't get there, when there's no we, when there's no connection, the marriage begins to be starved. It's kind of like if you um, hold your breath too long. You, You start wanting that breath from somewhere. That breath has to come in somewhere so you can breathe again. Or it's like, you know, kind of cutting off the the blood flow somewhere, eventually there's going to be a problem. And, and so we often get desperate when the connection is not there because we as humans are desperate for connection. Here's the problem. Marriages, any marriage, 
tend to have more and less connection as kind of the tide. There are days when you feel very connected and there are days when you feel less connected. And that's the natural flow of relationships. There are periods in life when you feel more connected and less connected. That's the the flow of relationships. That's the nature of relationships. And so part of the problem is that we first believe that infatuation, that beginning stage, that, that the tingles, as Gary Chapman calls them, the tingles should be what it's about. And so when the tingles exit, first of all, we mistake that as connection exiting instead of us getting back to life and, and having to actually live a life. And so we have that piece. But then there is just the overall connection piece. Bob Grant and I talked about the shift from adrenaline attraction to endorphin attraction. And endorphin attraction is when you're doing things to show love to the other person. Adrenaline attraction is, is also this place where you're trying to get something out of the relationship. You're trying to get some, some feeling and you're trying uh, to get something from it. Excitement even. Fear is, is involved in that. But then endorphin, when it's a committed relationship, it switches to endorphin base, which is where you're having to show love in order to get there. And so you're trying to show love to the other person to, to stir that connection. But what happens if two people stop showing love? Then the connection, the attraction begins to wane. And so when you're at a place, a low point of connection, there is the, the vulnerability Not the necessity for an affair, but the vulnerability that something might happen, which brings in the second danger point, and that's a lack of boundaries. Boundaries are how you protect yourself. It's also how you protect your relationship, what you won't allow to happen. You know, there are some people who have rules in their marriage about how you interact with other people. Because remember, in almost every wedding vow, you took this vow to forsake all others. There was no place in the wedding where it said, and you will never notice anybody ever again, and there will never be any communication with somebody that might put your relationship at risk. That's not what we promised, but we promised to forsake, to keep people at a distance, to stay away from the relationships that could take away from our marriage. That doesn't mean we don't have friendships. It doesn't mean that we don't have other people in our lives, but forsake people from getting into the relationship arena, into that, that circle between us that we preserve for the marriage. Here's the problem. In the years that I talked with couples who were getting ready to get married, not a single one had had discussions about the boundaries that each of them wanted in the relationship, of how to protect the relationship. And so neither one had the boundaries in place when life starts getting in the way. And so they didn't have the boundaries. We had that discussion ourselves, but they hadn't had that before. So I had them talk about the boundaries of how you'll interact with people of the opposite sex, of what's okay on social media, what's okay in discussions, what's okay, what makes them feel okay and safe versus what's not okay, what needs to be kept away. Since I know that all of those couples didn't have those conversations, my feeling is that most couples in the world get married without having had a discussion about those boundaries. So without the boundaries in place and without the connection, people are at risk. That's what causes the affair. Oh, and there's one other thing that has to be there for the affair to happen. Lots and lots of rationalizing. We humans being dishonest with ourselves and the people around us. That's that rationalizing where we say, well, you know, I'm only doing this because, you know, this is, it's, it's not like that. It's not what you think it is. And we even say that to ourselves. You know, we can say it to a spouse. We can say it to ourselves. We can say it to all of our friends who are looking around going, what are you doing? That rationalizing is part of the human process. I don't think my dog rationalizes things. I don't think any other animal does. They just react. 
but we humans have the capacity of making things make sense. The choices we're making on emotional levels make sense unless we're aware that we get into that rationalizing place. So it requires a loss of connection, a loss of boundaries, and then lots of rationalizing to make sure it makes sense in our own head. Now, here's the thing about um, the, the tendency in a marriage. When there's an affair, the person who suffered the affair maximizes all of the bad stuff. They maximize how horrible this is and how uh, bad that person is and how bad the spouse is and, and all of this. So it's maximizing that while there's another process going on for the one who had the affair and they're minimizing everything. That's not a big deal. That relationship isn't what you think it is. Those texts don't mean what you think they do. The emails don't mean anything. Those phone calls that I take, you know, out of the room, they don't mean anything. Those business trips where I'm missing those hours, that doesn't mean anything, right? And the other spouse is maximizing. And so after the relationship, after the affair is discovered, the one who suffered the affair maximizes how bad this is while the other person minimizes how bad it is. And the truth is often somewhere in between, which brings us to how you recover through this process. The first thing is, I'm assuming that when you're listening, you are the person who suffered the affair. And so there are several things I want you to remember. The first one, this is not about you. This is not a comparison of you. This is not choosing someone better than you. In fact, you're not competing at all with the affair. The affair is the result of a lack of connection, and you do have to kind of look through that and decide for yourself how you participated in a non-connected relationship. But this is on your spouse for not having created the boundaries, for not having protected the relationship, for not having also looked at that connection. But this is not about you, about the other person. This is not the place for you to compare and say, how would you choose that other person? And you know, what is it about that other person that got you? That is not what this is about. Don't get trapped into that place where you begin to compare yourself. This is not about you. This is about a spouse who did not protect the relationship that was at a low point of connection. This is not about you. And say that to yourself over and over until you believe it. It's not about you. The second thing is, it is about the connection and the boundaries. So at some point in the recovery process, you have to reconnect. And here's the tough thing. You're at a place where you don't feel like being close to a spouse. And yet, if you want to make it through, you have to work on rebuilding the connection. And you need to have a discussion about the boundaries that you both expect out of the relationship. Connection and boundaries are the protection points for an affair. If you want to know how to make a marriage affair-proof, connect thoroughly with your spouse and have clear boundaries that will protect it when that connection wanes at any point. That's also how you recover from an affair, to to work on and focus on reconnecting and work on and focus on what boundaries both of you want in the relationship. The third piece of that process that helps is to forgive, to recognize that your spouse is human, that your spouse made a mistake, and that your relationship can recover. That forgive process, if you're just a few days into this or a few weeks into this, that is not where your mind is, and you're probably very upset with me about bringing that up. And yet, if you believe that, it's because you don't understand forgiveness. For me, in my interpretation of forgiveness, forgiveness is for the person forgiving. It's not about letting the other person off the hook. It's about getting yourself off the hook instead 
of releasing that pain, of releasing that hurt, of making sure that you allow the other person to deal with that, but that you forgive. Remember, forgiveness is not removing consequences. It's just deciding that you're not going to be held to that. If you need more about that, there are some links to my forgive process in the show notes. And I do have a book coming out later on, probably almost a year from now, about the forgive process. We're at the final point of edits for that. But that whole process needs to happen so that you can be free of that. Not so that your spouse is free, but so that you are free. So part of what happens in that forgive process is you begin to discover that you can reconnect with that spouse, which leads to our fourth piece of learning to re-trust. I believe that trust is a gift. It's a gift that's important to be treasured by the person who gets the trust. And you've got to decide how you're going to give the trust. Sometimes we make the gift of trust way too expensive. You know, we don't trust people even though we should, but then there are those who trust immediately when they shouldn't. We make it too cheap. And so your task is to find that midpoint of making trust worth it, but not so expensive. Sometimes I see people who will not ever trust a spouse again after an affair, and they are in trouble. That marriage is in trouble. There's no way through it if you can't get to the place of retrusting. That's the basis of a marriage. At some point, you've got to get to the place of being able to retrust, but you don't do it without reason. So there has to be a remake. And so some people will say, how could I possibly trust my spouse again after that? And my response is, remember the root causes of this. If you fix the root causes of disconnection and lack of boundaries, then you have a new place to, to build from. Then you have a new capacity of working to recover that trust. If you need more about that, I also have resources on trust that you can find in the show notes. But these are the ways through an affair and how to survive an affair. Remember, it's not about you. Remember to look at the connection and the boundaries. Number three is to work on your own forgiveness. And number four, work to retrust. If this has been helpful, but not quite enough, I do have a book, Recovering from the Affair. The easiest way to find this is to go to savethemarriage.com slash affair book. That's savethemarriage.com slash affair book. Or just go to Amazon and do a search for Lee Balkum, and you'll see my other books there. Use that as a backbone for how you recover after an affair. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best as you work to save your marriage listening to Save the Marriage podcast. For more information and help, please visit us at savethemarriage.com.